Good morning, everyone. So glad to see you all. It's so good to be with you. Um, I was thinking this week um, about, oh gosh, I guess about 15 years ago, I was sitting around a table at a friend's house. We we're having a small group. Hopefully you're all in a small group. And we were sitting around talking about uh, whatever we were studying led us to the discussion of uh, sins that we struggle with just persistently all the time. And then it came my turn to talk. And I said, well, if I had to think about a sin that I struggle with all the time, it would be worry, two people in the group blurted out for me. I said, what? I'm not really a worrier. And then everybody else in the group burst out laughing like I was trying to be funny. But, but I wasn't trying to be funny. So I just kind of fell into a grumpy silence. And I was like, what have I done to make everyone in this group think I'm somebody who worries about stuff? So I didn't participate in the rest of the group. I just sat there running through every interaction we'd had for the last year, wondering what happened that would make them think I worry about things. All next week at work, I was totally distracted, thinking, why did everyone act that way at group? Why would someone think I am a worrier? And like 15 years later, I can still remember this moment. But hey, I'm not a worrier. Now that's pretty low-rent worry, you know. That's like worrying about what people think about you. I bet some of you have like more world-class worries, worries about bad things happening to you or happening to people that you love. Um, My perception is right now in the life of our church, we have a lot of folks who are worried about a lot of things. Um, I think that because last December, I knew that I was going to preach from Proverbs, but I didn't know what. So I thought, well, I'll just give you all, and I did, a list of 20 or more than 20 topics that Proverbs covers, and just ask you to do check boxes on ones you'd like to receive some wisdom on. The hugest majority of you selected worry and trust in God as the thing you wanted to hear about. Like second place was an eight-way tie. So, so we're going to talk about worry and trust in God from Proverbs this morning. Obviously, when it comes to fear and worry, we're not going to be able to just stop it. We've all tried that. I just won't worry so much. And then uh, the best result you can get is that then you just start to worry about why it is you can't stop worrying. So we're going to have to go a lot deeper this morning then stop it. Now, I want to let you know that the problem actually may be more damaging than you believe. I mean, we all would like to worry less, but there may be ways that we are managing fear and worry that may flat out be destructive to our life and soul. So I, I hate to, on a morning you came anxious, make you more anxious, but in all seriousness, there may be things we do that make fear and worry even worse than the fear and worry itself. Let's take a a little bit here and look at some techniques for managing worry and fear that may actually be destroying you. The first is trying to manage it through a strict, unbreakable routine. How many of us try to manage uh, through a strict, unbreakable routine in order to make life predictable and manageable? And that's how we control things. If you have kids, it might look like this. They always nap at the same time, always eat at the same time, always sleep at the same time. Because if they don't, that results in chaos. And chaos is unacceptable. Now, kids got to have a routine, but you'll know it's gone too far 
When this routine drives you away from all of your friends, from all of your community, and this routine isolates you because you can't go anywhere and you can't do anything because everything bumps up against nap time, bumps up against meal time, bumps up against snack time, bumps up against story time. And so you're isolated. And you tell yourself, well, it's just because how old the kids are, maybe five or ten years from now, I'll start having friends again. That's a bad plan. Everybody's looking at me with a straight face. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. No. (laughs) And if you're honest, their strict routine doesn't prevent your kids from bringing chaos to the home, does it? Now you're telling yourself, well, it'd be a lot worse if I didn't. But is this strict routine worth every relationship and spontaneous moment in your life? People without children manage fear and worry the same way. Before kids, there was a time that I also wanted a strict routine to carry me through each day. I wanted to go to work. That's where most of the chaos would take place. But then after that, I wanted to go to the gym. I wanted to go home, clean the kitchen. That was my chore. Eat dinner, watch a movie, and just have each night proceed peacefully through those steps. And if anything interrupted that, I became very irritable. (laughs) Even if it was Ashley's folks inviting us out to dinner. Now, that would mean she wouldn't have to cook that night, so that's a little lift. And at that time, if Ashley's folks invited you out to dinner, they would pay every time. I was giving up a free meal, and I'm a tightwad, I'm giving up a free meal and a happy wife in order to have a safe routine. That's madness. That's when it's gone too far. Trying to control bad things with a strict routine, first of all, doesn't work. And second of all, it suffocates all the rest of life from us. But that's not the worst thing you can do to manage fear and worry. There is something even more destructive. Our lust for safety and stability can lead us to worship a false God. To worship a predictable but false God. So, you know, before Jesus showed up, the Pharisees, they were priests, kind of. And they had God all figured out, right? They had all the laws written down on how one pleases God. And I'm not talking about the Old Testament. They put 614 laws around the Old Testament to make sure you never even got close to violating the Bible. They had special extra rules for hand washing and purity. Um, They had rules for Sabbath keeping. They had rules for what? For eating, and they had harsh penalties for anyone who won't want to break their easily understood rules. In their culture and their day to day life, they had the good guys and the bad guys clearly outlined. The Jews were the good guys, and everyone who wasn't a Jew was the bad guys, and the Romans were the extra bad guys. There was no gray area. When you met someone, you knew how to treat them based on where they came from. Then Jesus comes, and he messes it all up. He heals on the Sabbath when he's not supposed to be working. He eats without washing his hands in their ritual, purified way. 
He talks to sinners and even goes over to sinners' house and eats dinner with them. And when they call him on it, he says, well, I'm just trying to show you guys what God is like. Hogwash, they said to that. God is not loosey-goosey like that. So they nailed him to the cross. But then God comes and raises Jesus from the dead and gives him the name that is above every name. And that can only mean one thing. God is putting his seal of approval on the way Jesus did it and saying, what Jesus said about me is true and what these guys, the Pharisees, have told you is not true. God is, in fact, by his own word, not that predictable, not that black and white. And yet, even though we know that, we are drawn to clear-cut, easy-to-understand theologies about God, even if they make our God out to be someone totally different than what Jesus described. Now, ask this of yourself. Do you find that you're just kind of drawn to legalism, drawn toward judgment, drawn toward moralism, even though Jesus taught against all that because it's easy to understand Do you hate when difficult questions come into church? Do you hate when gray areas come into religion? Oh, that's a gray area. Do you just reject that? You have to give this to the Pharisees. At least ruthlessly keeping the Sabbath and hating people of other races and religions and shunning your sinful neighbors was clear and doable. When you got up in the morning, things were very predictable. You knew what to do. You knew how to treat people, and there was no questions needed. Do you see what's happening and and what was happening then? It's making predictability and clarity an idol, a little false god. In the pursuit of a god of clarity, we may actually be creating a false god to follow. You could actually condemn yourself by making predictability the idol you worship. Because the real God, according to Jesus, is a God who wants sinners to change and yet also eats with them. He's a God who wants the Sabbath to be a day of rest, yet also uses it as a day to help people. Believe it or not, As bad as worshiping a false god is, it's still not the worst thing you can do to manage fear and worry. And I don't know if I'm getting to the worst yet, but this last one is the worst of what we've described. You could destroy the work that the Holy Spirit is trying to do through you. Let's say that you have someone in your life and they have had something horrible happen to them. They have a disease or they've had an accident or they've been the victim of a crime And when you hear about it, all you can do is start asking weird questions like, uh, well, now, where were you when this happened? I mean, were you someplace you didn't belong? Do you smoke? Is that why you're sick? Do you smoke cigarettes? Do you eat healthy or not? I mean, you're sick, but do you eat a lot of ho-hos and drink a lot of Mountain Dew or what? What's going on? How were you dressed when this crime happened to you? Maybe you were advertising for trouble. Someone is in the midst of tragedy. And all we can do is start mining to find out, was it their fault? 
Could this have been prevented? Sometimes we do this right to their face. We aren't being compassionate at all. Here's what we're really doing. We're making sure what happened to them could never happen to us. It's a form of cruelty. It's blaming the victim to make ourselves feel safe. Violating the love and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus in favor of convincing ourselves that this is not the sort of world where bad things can happen to people like me who keep my nose clean. This sort of thing only happens to people like you. And I just, you know, I bet in three questions I can find out how you brought this on yourself and then I'm at peace. Because I figured out what you did to cause it and that I am safe. How many of you have ever been treated this way when you're in a tragedy? You're sharing someone and you're, you're hurt and all they can do is ask a bunch of questions to try to figure out what you did wrong and then they're pretty satisfied once they figure out that you brought it on yourself. I actually hope what we're saying here today will help you forgive that person who treated you that way. As you understand that they weren't really blaming you They were just so afraid of your tragedy. When you told your story, they were so possessed with fear in that moment. Like, what if that that could happen to them? What if if that could happen to me? And so then they had to begin to convince themselves that they were safe from that. And they did something very selfish in that moment to assuage their own fear. But it wasn't really against you. It was really about their own sickness. I hope that helps you move toward forgiving someone who may have not been very understanding when you were when you were hurt. But do we all see how poisonous all of this can be? In the pursuit of safety, which is good, and in the pursuit of stability, which is good, we can commit great evils that corrupt our soul. And yet... We can't just stop it. Are we incompetent to live before God? Do we just not have what it takes to handle our life? For that answer, we're going to look to Proverbs this morning. Proverbs is a book of wisdom in the Old Testament in the Bible. It contains essays, it contains poems, and it contains hundreds of these little sayings. They almost read like fortune cookies. But for 3,000 years, this has been considered a well of deep wisdom, and we're going to draw from it. Proverbs makes us competent for life. That's what Proverbs brings, competency. It makes us competent to live our lives. And when it comes to fear and worry, there are a lot of places to start, but we're going to start in Proverbs 3.25. It says, you need not be afraid of sudden disaster or destruction that comes upon the wicked For the Lord is your security. He will keep your foot from being caught in a trap. So this is just the beginning of a hint that we don't have to be afraid because although we can't get any security from people and we can't get any security from our circumstances, it says God can be our security. God, the ancient and the almighty creator of all things can become our security. 
Here's another proverb that gets us closer. Proverbs 19, 23. Fear of the Lord leads to life, bringing security and protection from harm. Fear of the Lord wigs us out. We don't, this is a phrase that gives us the willies. We're already afraid, and this says, oh yeah, you want something to be afraid of? Be afraid of God. But I, I like this proverb, and I like this concept, because it honors the fact that when it comes to fear, we can't just stop it. So Proverbs suggests, well, you've got all these fears. Let's just put them in order. And it's going to tell you what to do next. If you study the fear of the Lord, it starts out tough. And then I I think it pretty quickly, it becomes clear that what fear of the Lord means is, even when you're afraid, stick to God. Does your fear, for instance, cause you to make control and a strict routine into an idol? Well, this says fear the Lord more. Do what he wants instead of the strict routine that drives everyone away. Take risks and be with people as he calls us to be in community. Fear being outside of God's family more than you fear the chaos of letting people in and from time to time adjusting your routine. Does your fear cause you to lose compassion and blame the victims in order to comfort yourself? Well, fear of the Lord says, fear the Lord more and keep your compassion. Be kind to those who are in tragedy, as his word says. Reach out to the lost, as Jesus did. Fear being a Pharisee who's condemned by God more than you fear living in a world where bad things sometimes happen to very good people. Does your worry cause you to chase after a predictable God, even if he isn't real? Turning you into a worshiper of a false idol. And of course, fear of the Lord means to fear the one true God even more and keep your eyes fixed on him, even when he makes you uncomfortable. Even when you're so shaken, you want to run away to a very predictable God who tells you exactly what to do. Fear the one true God enough to stay there before him and keep your eyes fixed on him. But when you do that, a wisdom comes to you that actually brings you the security you're about to think you're running off to get. You see, when you keep your eyes fixed on God, then the truth of Proverbs 15.3 comes to you. That the Lord is watching everywhere, keeping his eye on both the evil and the good. So there's nothing you fear that the Lord hasn't already seen. Nothing you're planning for or uh, wondering about that, that he hasn't already considered all the various outcomes and he knows how it'll turn out. When has God ever failed you? When were you completely destroyed? When did you fall into a trap that he never came and rescued you from? If you're sitting here today to consider those questions, then the answer is never. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take.
When has God ever forsaken his people in this story? Then why would he suddenly start now with you? We have to admit that we want control, but when we control things, we just make them worse. That was for me. That probably wasn't for anyone here needed to hear that. But since I needed to hear it daily, I'm going to say it again to myself. Admit that I want control, but when I control things, I just make them worse. God can be trusted because he made the universe and he really knows how it works. You know, everyone, look at the Christmas story, not the presents and all that part. The part with the stable and the animals and the unplanned pregnancy and the king who's coming to kill the baby and, you know... Look at the Easter story and the Good Friday and the cross and the tomb and the whipping. Is this the story you would have made to bring a savior to redeem the world? Is this what any of us here would have thought of? No. And yet, it's saving the whole world. It's the only thing going that really brings peace and builds a bridge to God. He knows how and when to bring the right thing into time and where in the world to bring it and through whom to bring it so that it unfolds and has the power to redeem the whole world. He knows how to bring all things together for you and I. God does good by us, but we have to admit this. He usually changes us through unexpected pain. Darn it. God must be unpredictable to challenge us and the world. He must be more than just predictable in order to be a real being and a real God. And we just have to let God be himself. We have to let God be his unpredictable self in order to redeem the world. We must let God surprise us every now and again, even though we hate surprises the most. Otherwise, we and everything around us will always stay just the way it is. And just the way it is, is not good. Not for most people in the world. The world must be redeemed. And he knows how to do it. So when something bad happens to us, we don't have to overhaul everything just to make sure that never happens again. Sometimes we're just going to get into a car accident. Never driving again after dark will not fix it. Sometimes our children are going to get sick. Keeping them at home forevermore will not fix it. Someday they will have to leave the house again. Read the secret garden. Sometimes criminals or disaster will strike and we don't need to pin blame on anyone to assure us that it can never happen to us. It won't work and it's not true and it steals all the rest of life from us. But you know who can protect us? The one true God. And when we're not protected, you know who can rescue us? the one true God of the Old and the New Testament. 
And when we're not protected and that storm reigns all over us. And we have to weather it from the start till it's done. Do you know who can help us grow from that experience? Instead of shrinking and becoming this kind of cringing, pathetic person who would rather go live in a storm shelter than ever risk being out in the wind. The God who shapes all hearts. The God who saw this page in your story before the first word of it was ever written in real time. But alongside God, actually, he gives us something else. He gives us the church. He gives us each other. As I look out today, what I see is a family. What I see is a team. And we are all in it. We are all in together. And none of us is the first to go through whatever it is we're going through here this morning. Sitting not very far from you right now is someone else who has gone through something very much like what you're going through. And they survived. And you can draw strength and wisdom from them. That's why we showed up here. I had someone say once, oh, I looked at the sermon next week. I've heard you do that one a hundred times. I'm not going to be there. It's not for me. I said, what if God needs you for someone else? As you go out in the lobby and you say, what's going on? And they blurt out this story. But you're a survivor. You can draw strength and wisdom from them, and someday they'll draw strength and wisdom from you. Each other, we are God's gift to let us know we're not alone. Even the tiniest worry this morning is in God's hands. The big stuff and the small stuff. Some of us are just all twisted up because we bought that kid a soccer ball and they lost it after one practice. And, of course, this is the time of year when many of us parents will make the pilgrimage to the elementary school and go through the lost and found ourselves and find that coat that was missing since Christmas break. Sometimes it's there. Usually it's not. Even a pair of lost eyeglasses. Whatever it is that's got you all worked up, the huge or the tiny, it's all in the palm of his hand. This story comes to us from Cheryl Stewart. Writing about her grandpa, she says, Grandpa Nybachan loved life, especially when he could play a trick on somebody. At those times, his large Norwegian frame would shake with laughter while he feigned innocent surprise, exclaiming, Oh, forevermore. But on a cold Saturday in downtown Chicago, God played a trick on him, and Grandpa wasn't laughing. Mother's father was a carpenter. On this particular day, he was building some crates for clothes his church was sending to an orphanage in China. On his way home, he reached into his shirt pocket to find his glasses, but they were gone. He remembered putting them there that morning, so he drove back to the church. His search proved fruitless. When he mentally replayed his earlier actions, he realized what happened. The glasses had slipped out of his pocket unnoticed and fallen into one of those crates, which he had nailed shut. His brand new glasses were headed for China. 
The Great Depression was at its height, and Grandpa had six children. He had spent $20, 20 Great Depression dollars, for those glasses that very morning. He was upset by the thought of having to buy another pair. It's not fair, he told God as he drove home in frustration. I've been very faithful in giving my time and money to your work, and now this. Several months later, the director of the orphanage was on furlough in the United States. He wanted to visit all the churches that supported him in China. So he came to speak one Sunday night at my grandfather's small church in Chicago. Grandpa and his family sat in their customary seats among the sparse congregation. The missionary began by thanking the people for their faithfulness in supporting the orphanage. But most of all, he said, I must thank you for the glasses you sent last year. You see, the communists had just swept through the orphanage, destroying everything, including my glasses. I was desperate. Even if I had the money, there was simply no way of replacing those glasses in China. Along with not being able to see well, I experienced headaches every day. So my coworkers and I were very much in prayer about this. Then your crates arrived, and when my staff removed the covers, they found a pair of glasses lying on top. The missionary paused long enough to let his words sink in. Then still gripped with the wonder of it all, he said, Folks, when I tried on the glasses, it was as though they had been custom made just for me. I want to thank you for being a part of that. The people listened, happy for the miraculous glasses, but the missionary surely must have confused their church with another, they thought. There were no glasses on their list of items to be sent overseas. But sitting quietly in the back with tears streaming down his face, an ordinary carpenter realized that the master carpenter had used him in an extraordinary way. Whatever, whatever worries you today, God holds it in the palm of his hand. And he holds you. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.